0: It really is an honour to come and worship together this morning on such a beautiful day. Um, thank you to the band and all those who have shared this morning. I think it's been a really special time of worship. And so we're continuing on today on our series on 1 Peter, and on this theme of living differently to a people who are dealing with being dual citizens of aliens in the land. We talked last week, Elliot shared, of how this, the people that Peter were writing to were made up of the, what we call the diaspora, those who had spread amongst the land. There are people made up of Jews and Gentiles following this new faith. There weren't guidelines written out to them. And as they're trying to work all of this out, they're being systematically persecuted by the state. They've been removed from their city, not, no longer have their homes. And most importantly, perhaps they've been kicked out of the temple. For a while after the resurrection of Jesus, the Christians continued going to the temple as they didn't see it as a discontinuation of what they'd believed before. But we think in the decades preceding this letter was the time that the Jews started to kick them out, started to say, you're not welcome here. And that might, might be easy for us to accept, people who've grown up learning that buildings aren't where God resides. But to these people... The template always represented hope. The template always represented access to God. Elliot shared his personal experience of where he felt like an alien. And I think we all have our own. I was trying to think of mine this week and the best example for me has been times when I moved to school. Back in primary school, a couple of times in my life, our family moved states. I'm an introverted person and was probably even more introverted as a kid. And moving to Sydney where we knew no one, a school where I knew no one, was an incredibly scary experience. Coming back was the same. I remember in year five walking into a year level of people who'd known each other for five years, had their own inside jokes. They already knew the sport that they played at lunchtime. I didn't get to have a say in that. They all knew the teacher. I didn't. It's incredibly scary and alien. And if you have your own experience of that, as I'm sure you do, you know, the first thing you do is you look for some sort of hope. For me, it was I looked for a friend I could cling on to. I tried to ingratiate myself into the sport. I tried to find any little sliver of connection I could find. And I wonder for these people that Peter's writing to, I wonder if they were dealing with a lack of hope. That after having lost their home, dealing with a new religion, dealing with new people, that the hope had always been God, but now they'd been cast out of the one place that had offered access. They'd been taken away from the place that had always represented God. And Peter points them to the example of Jesus when discussing this. And what's interesting to me is where he starts. The first line that we heard today was Peter says in verse 4, As you come to him. As I read this, I realized I think Peter's using a tactic I've seen my dad use before. I'm sure many of the parents out here have used before. The framing of an instruction in something that seems almost like a question. I often got told, after you put the bins out, you can help with the dishes. He'd never actually told me to put the bins out, but it seemed like I had an option. But it definitely wasn't. What Peter says here, as you come to him, it's framed as something we can choose to participate in, but it's not. For Peter, it's an expectation. It's a natural result of living the Christian life. Peter sees it as if we are lost, if we are truly aliens, if we are dealing with rejection and suffering, our natural posture should be one to, to come before him. The first few times I read through this passage reflecting on this, I actually missed, skipped over this first line. So saw it as before the important part but I've been really challenged since considering it to ask myself, how often do I intentionally come to him in my week? Is it something I just do when I come to a building on a Sunday morning? Or is it something I build into my rhythms and practices? Is it something I just do when I'm suffering and hurt? Or is it something I do in the good and the bad? But I think there's another thing going on in this line as well. There's a slight hurdle coming to him. If these people had always understood access to God being built in the temple, how could they come to him? If God's spirit resided in the Holy of Holies within the temple, and they've now left that city, how do they sit before their God? It's almost as if Peter rubs it in their faces, having addressed the problem. It's almost as if he saw them total their car and then asked if they could give them a list somewhere. He's quite harsh about it. And having identified the problem, Peter offers up an example. He offers up the living stone, who he says is Jesus. And to a people dealing with rejection, suffering, hurt and loss, the Jesus that Peter offers up is really interesting. If I was writing this letter, I think the Jesus I might have identified would have been the almighty one. The one that could take them out of their situation with a click of his fingers. The one that could solve everything in an instant or failing that, maybe the all-knowing one, the one who was allowing them to go through trials because there was a bigger plan in place, that he was leading them somewhere really good. It was to bring on perseverance. Luckily, Peter isn't me, because he chooses something else. He uses this line to describe the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. The Jesus that Peter offers up is one who can understand their suffering, not just at an intellectual level, but one who faced rejection, loss and hurt himself. I hope in times where we face suffering, where we're feeling rejected, when we feel like the alien, that this is the Jesus we know. Not one that can just click his fingers and take us out of our situation, but one that can understand us and empathise with us, because he walked this walk first. But there's more going on in this title than just an example. Because in taking up the title of Living Stone, Jesus says he's being built into the spiritual house, into the temple itself. The temple had always been important for a couple of reasons. First, it was this access to God. That God himself chose to reside in the Holy of Holies for his nation. that The high priest could go there on behalf of the people. But the temple had many courts and it was where communal worship, festivals, teaching, activity could take place. And so while it's tempting to think of the temple as an individual experience where one could get right with God, the temple was an intensely communal place. And to a people who are feeling lost and alien, the fact that Jesus was the first building block of the new temple might just have been the sliver of hope they'd been waiting for i mentioned before my experience at school, when I came back in year five, what my teacher did to make me feel at home was gave me a buddy I had to sit next to. They chose another Josh. And at first I wasn't sure if this was going to lead to some tension. Was he a Josh or a Joshua? Were we going to argue of which one of us got the name? Or was he going to exclude me and hang out with the friends he'd known for many years? But what inevitably happened was he invited me to play soccer at lunch. And I got a sliver of hope. I felt a little bit less like an alien. And I think this is what's happening here. If we find our bearing in Jesus, if we see him as this building block of the temple, access to God can be restored. We can find hope. Peter then goes to address the people. He extends the metaphor from just Jesus to the people he's writing to, to the community. He calls them living stones too they also are being built into the spiritual house. And he uses this metaphor of the cornerstone. We sing about the cornerstone regularly. I've heard several passages on it. um, And it's it's so rich. But I spoke to Andrew um, and asked for his architectural opinion during the week on, on what a cornerstone represents. And he said to me that the important thing is that it's laid first, not symbolically, not because everyone follows exactly that way but it becomes a reference point for everything else if you want your building to be square everything has to be in line with that cornerstone you judge whether what the stones are placed right are doing the correct thing based on their position in relationship to the cornerstone so these people are being told you yourselves are being built into the temple you yourselves as a community are access to god And your reference point is the Jesus who walked before you. Access to God is restored and not just in a building. Access to God is now a personal and relational experience. This is exciting in some ways. It solves problems in some ways. But the promise isn't that they'll be saved from rejection. The promise isn't that people will come to love them. The promise is that their value isn't found in the approval of men. The promise is that their value is found because they are precious and loved by the God who dwelt in the temple. This might seem like a cool metaphor Peter's come up with. Peter's version of Paul's, the body being their church. But I don't think this is a new idea. Last week I was talking to Elliot and Melinda about my original thoughts for this message and I was saying every time I've ever written something I'd like to share, I've wanted to talk about Genesis 1-3 to 3 and how it relates. It's always ended up being on the cutting room floor but I think it's hard to talk about the temple, about what Peter's referencing without considering the creation story. Because the creation story in Genesis is packed full with temple imagery. So much so that when the temple was finally built, It was created as a mini Eden. Israel weren't the only ones with a temple. The surrounding nations did. And there was somewhat a protocol how you created your temple. Once the building was finished and completed, you'd bring an idol in. And for most cultures, you carved the idol in the shape of an animal that represented something about the god you were worshipping. If your god was a powerful god, you might make the idol a lion. If your god was about fertility, it might be a bull. But God's story flips this on its head because instead of making an idol or allowing humans to create the idol out of an animal, God says, you were made in my image. In many ways, we are the idol. We are the ones that are built in the temple that he created. And in the surrounding cultures, the the idol and the temple got its power. Once the idol was in place, there would often be this ceremonial fire that would go around the idol. And the idol represented the spirit coming in. And unfortunately, what we see in the Genesis story is that doesn't come to fruition. Our access to God, where we walked along the paths with him, was one where they got cast out. Access to God was denied, and a physical temple became necessary. But Peter seems to think something has changed. Peter uses this metaphor and picks back up on old ideas because something has changed. And the thing that has changed, he points to, is Jesus. Because in Jesus we see a human who lived a life guided by the Spirit. And Peter says we get to participate in that as well. I think this is where we see the moment of Pentecost. Acts 2 verses 3 to 4 says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The imagery is really cool. Once again, God is flipping on its head at what surrounding nations did. But it's remarkable what this truly means for us. I don't know where you've used the reference of the body as a temple, and my family gets used a lot, perhaps a bit too flippantly. Often, when I hear it said, what will have happened is it will be around for family dinner. And after family dinner, there will usually be a snack. It's the big event of the week. And as the chocolate block's getting um, broken up, it'll be passed around. What will nearly always happen is my brother will refuse it. If there's someone stupid enough to ask him, Why aren't you having any? his answer will always be some version of I'm an elite footballer, my body is a temple. He's on to something slightly correct. I do think it's important how we look after ourselves, that we realise that the bodies are something God has given us and carved in creation. But it can also be quite flippant. When we talk about our bodies as the temple, do we take seriously the implications of the Spirit taking up residence in us? That God chooses us, people who are rejected, People who feel lost and alienated. People trying to work out this dual citizenship between two worlds. That he chooses us as his holy of holies. A lot of the challenges these people were facing aren't ones we deal with today. I didn't face any opposition coming here this morning. I'm allowed to live where I'd like. I haven't been kicked out of my home. But what Peter has to say here is deeply important for the way we choose to live. There's two things in particular I want to focus on. The first is, if we're to take up our roles as living stones, as Peter calls us to, do we take seriously this descriptor? Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. We sang this morning over and over this line, I love it, I am who you say that I am. Is that where we find our value? Do we find our beauty in the fact that we are chosen and precious to God? Or are we instead tempted to define ourselves how we'd like? Often I know I'm challenged by the fact I'll come here on a Sunday morning and I'll sing a line like that with my hand in the air and, and feel overcome by emotion. It's something I want for myself so bad. But then I'll go out in the rest of my afternoon and I'll spend the rest of the day without thinking what the Lord wants me to do. I'll spend the rest of the day making me who I want me to be. I wish I had some simple strategy to how to avoid this. I think it's a learning process. But I think the starting point to our answer lies in Peter's first words. As you come to him. If we're to be living stones, if we're to be the temple as community, do we take seriously this coming before him, this posture of coming before him rather than seeking the approval of the world? Do we understand we're precious because we are chosen by God? The second point is one that I think sometimes it's easy for us to recognize that maybe we could be the temple. You might not find this, perhaps I'm very arrogant. When I was practising this message in front of Tamara last night, this was the one part she said amen to, was my arrogance. But perhaps it's easy for us to accept that we could be the temple because we have a high view of ourselves. In a highly individualised culture, perhaps we can accept that God loves me so much that he'd choose me. That he loves me. However, this passage is about living stones. It's about a community. It's why we gather together so regularly. This temple that is being built is one of community, each indwelt by the Spirit. But it also means something more serious for how I treat one another. If I am the temple indwelt by the Spirit, so are you. Which means when I treat someone poorly because I haven't had enough sleep, When I purchase an item that relies on slave wages going on somewhere else. When I'm in a bad mood and can't be bothered having a conversation with someone at the checkout. When I elevate myself by putting others down. I sin not just because I do what the Bible tells me not to. I don't just cease being a nice person for an instant. I sin against the temple of God, against his creation. I think it's why the Bible is so often links justice and holiness. Because a lack of justice in how we treat one another represents a lack of holiness in the temple. And we saw how seriously Jesus takes holiness in the temple when he flips over tables when they didn't recognize the power and beauty of God. This isn't to present God as a scary boogeyman. I don't want that to be the takeaway of this message, that God is spying on us in each individual, that every time we sin, we're in trouble, that we've disrespected the temple. But I do think we need to remember what's said at the end of this passage. In verse 10, we read, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy is a central point are forgiven as we forgive others. And the temple represents sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. God isn't necessarily judging us so strongly on the way we treat one another, but we do have to take seriously this call to see each other as the temple. And if the temple is now made up of living stones, we can't fall back into the old way of viewing the temple as physical location we shouldn't see a place representing holiness. We shouldn't feel a reason to be any more upright or upstanding when we stand in this building than in our workplaces and our homes. Because when we sit next to our workmate, when we walk past someone on the street, when we walk past someone through the shops, when we catch up with our families, we face a people who are carved as living stones who the Spirit either indwells or God desperately wants to indwell. And if we are the temple, we are that access point for God. We are the hands and feet. We live in a world where there's an epidemic of loneliness, of rejection, and of loss. Both inside and outside the church, I think there are so many people that connect to the story of alienation that Peter describes. There's so many of us that are tempted to seek the approval of others and constantly feel let down. And this message that we're given by Peter, that our value is found in the fact we are chosen. We're chosen by God and found precious to him, is, is central to the answer. If we're to be a living temple, we need to take seriously the way we treat one another because we are that representative. We are that access. It's an exciting call. What Peter says is we need to find our value in God, in who he says we are. We need to live out that line that we sing. And once we realize it for ourselves, we realize it for others. We start to treat people in a way that treats that gives them the respect and love that God Almighty gives We're going to finish off our gathering today by singing that line again. And I want you to to sing it, but also consider the implications of what we're talking about. What does it mean that we are who God says we are? We'll go into a time of prayer and then we'll finish by singing together.